You are listening to Behind the Horse's Eyes on the Illiterate Podcast Network. One of my most beloved sponsors has got to be Audible. I had an Audible account long before I thought about ever getting into podcasting. And Audible has an awesome gift for all of my listeners. And if you head over to audibletrial.com forward slash jryan, you're going to get a free audiobook on them and me. All you have to do is sign up for a free trial. And if you decide that Audible's not for you, and within 30 days, you can cancel. No harm, no foul, you spend no money, and you get to keep that free audiobook. Audible has hundreds of thousands of books in their catalog read by world-renowned narrators. From New York Times bestsellers to the classics, they're all on Audible. So again, head on over to audibletrial.com forward slash jryan and pick up your free audiobook today. I want to take this opportunity to talk about our latest partner here on Behind the Horse's Eyes, and that is Herd of Zebras. You can find them over at www.herd-of-zebras.com. And Herd of Zebras is more than just an equestrian lifestyle brand. It's a global community of just badass people who inspire others with their perseverance, grit, compassion, and authenticity. And what other people might call scars, whether it be physical or emotional, they call stripes. It's the experiences and the hardships that cause us to become stronger, kinder, and braver. Unlock all of that over at Herd of Zebras. I wear their shirts constantly. I was lucky enough for them to send me some swag. Um, I've done some promotional stuff for them. I'm going to tell you, I am sold. The quality of their products is is, is amazing. They're, all their products are printed here in the U.S. You're not going to find better people and people with a better message than Herd of Zebras. If you use the discount code JRyan at checkout over at Herd of Zebras, you're going to get 10% off of your order all the info for that is going to be in the description of this episode. That's www.herd-of-zebras.com. Promo code JRyan for 10% off today. I bet you didn't know we had a merch store. That's right. We actually have merch. If you head on over to the description, the notes of this episode, there will be a link there to the merch store. and You can head on over to the Mediocre Horseman store. From there, we have socks, we have hoodies, we have tanks, we have tees, and there's new designs coming out all the time. And the special this month is the Feral Appalachia shirt. 100% of the proceeds of that shirt are going to help feral horses in Appalachia. And 50% of everything else that's sold in the store is also going to go help feral horses in Appalachia through Feral Erin as part of the Appalachia Legacy Initiative. So click the link in the description, head on over there, get something, help out some amazing horses, some amazing people, and uh, help me feed my horses, for crying out loud. The term boots on the ground usually denotes that action is being taken, that something is being done, unless we're talking about Aaron O'Neill and the Appalachian Legacy Initiative. And quite literally, when we say boots on the ground, we mean her boots, as she is on the ground every day up in the mountains of Appalachia, working with horses that the world has basically forgotten. From mineral supplementation to medical care to rounding up bachelor stallions, it is Erin, her pickup truck, and her dogs doing 99% of the work. So when she accepted a partnership with this show, I was more than elated. 
And she's not paying me. I just want to help. This is how ingrained this subject is to me. As an ethnic Appalachian and a lover of horses, how could I not want to play some role in what's transpiring in Kentucky and West Virginia? So if you want to be part of the amazing work that Aaron's doing, there's going to be a link to the Appalachian Legacy Initiative in the show notes of this episode. And I invite everyone to go click it. Even if you don't donate... Just read a little bit of the work that she's doing, and you're going to gain a whole new appreciation for what it means to be a horseman. So i got to give everybody a little bit of a warning with this episode, and that is toward the end of it, the audio gets kind of wonky. And I apologize for that. I tried to clean it up the best I could, but I'm not what you would call an audio engineer. With that said, though, some great content. Uh, with Jesse, Jess in Alaska comes by, and uh, we talk all things past, present, and future with thoroughbreds. Um, a little different than how we've covered thoroughbreds before. We we delve into a lot of history here on a lot of different horses. We go down a bunch of rabbit holes, but we kind of still, it all hovers around the, the thoroughbred as a whole. So we recorded this live on TikTok. So we were taking questions from uh, our followers along the way, which, which added an interesting element to it. Um, again, the audio gets wonky. My mixer went down halfway through, so I had, it was just me and her and our phones live on TikTok, and I got another app running on my, my laptop trying to screen record, so I have a backup, which I'm glad I did because I ultimately got banned, like it seems like I do every time I get on TikTok live. So I'm gonna have to find another avenue for live recording because it was a really, really good experience, um, to have the, the, the other side, the, the followers, um, piping up, giving comments, asking questions along the way, especially as we went down these rabbit holes. It kind of helped guide the episode a little bit. So without any further ado, here's me and Jesse live. It is what it is. So, we'll uh, we'll just start it from the top. How's that? Sounds good. Sounds good. Okay. So, welcome back to another episode of Behind the Horse's Eyes. If I sound different, that's because we had to redo the intro and everything because my mic died, and we're doing this live. And um, so yeah. So, in other news, Jesse's here. Hi everyone. I'm back. He actually welcomed me back for once. Well. Because we've we've got limited time this time, we know we won't go five hours. Yes, yes. <laughs> and Flo's not here just for me and her to run down rabbit holes together. It's just me and you. 
that does not mean Flo is not probably going to show up at some point because that, that's, Flo that's is like bad <laughs> when you don't expect it, it just flips and lands. Mm -hmm. Mo's like some live early. Yeah, some live early. So early from us. So we're going to talk all things thoroughbred. Specifically, though, what I have coined, Jesse, tell me if you like it or not, beyond the track thoroughbreds, not just off the track. Definitely. I think that I feel like that's really, really good phrasing for them. So for those who don't know, let's get a reminder. Uh, what is your relationship with the thoroughbred? My relationship with the thoroughbred. Um, I always make the statement, everything I learned in life, I learned on the back of a thoroughbred. By the time I was four years old, I was able to ride an off the track, a 16 hand high off the track thoroughbred all by myself. And quite literally, they are the horses that I have owned and ridden the most in my life. I had a mom who worked with off track betting and that got me started into racing. I lived super close to Belmont racetrack and it's just something that has always been a piece of my life. I have my relationship with thoroughbred is definitely a lot more limited than yours. I've owned one, mm -hmm. but growing up where I grew up, well, technically growing up or living where I live now, I am surrounded by thoroughbreds. You know, there's a training track here, a uh, little horse by the name of Palace Malice. Some people may have heard of was trained mm -hmm. here. Um, the great Cock Campbell was a trainer here. Um, and so to say that uh, I don't know a thoroughbred would be an outright lie. Um, but there's a lot of, I think where a lot of people, they mess up is they get this idea in their head that uh, off the track thoroughbreds have one purpose in life. And that is to attempt to unalive anyone that gets on their back. Yeah, that there is quite a few stereotypes that, I, that I commonly hear when it comes to thoroughbreds and it ranges from everything from they're psychotic. They're only bred to run. They will uh, try to put you in the dirt as fast as they possibly can. And it's funny because like people that are like that deep into the thoroughbred industry, I'm talking lifers in the racing industry have no idea that these stereotypes even exist. Oh really? And that's, yeah. Like I get every time I make a, a video talking about the stereotypes, there are people in the racing industry that like people actually think this way i have someone who i i look up to and I, I would love to consider a friend someday who was like actually mad that i was like the way equestrians look at racehorses and at thoroughbreds is not in a very positive light by and large and i'm talking this is encompassing globally all this is encompassing all all disciplines I still like, like there's still the big myth, like big myth out there that they all go to slaughter after racing. And I'm like, excuse me, make that make sense. It doesn't make sense it, to me when you literally can't go to like a competition anywhere in the world and not see a horse that was form formerly on the racetrack. I would go as far as to say it's probably harder in these days to get a thoroughbred straight from the track to ship to slaughter because of all the groups that are out there assisting thoroughbreds these days with aftercare. Exactly. I mean, I, um, you have the Aftercare Alliance, which has raised like some, I think it's like $2 billion for thoroughbred aftercare and the jockey club genuinely cares. And I feel like that's one thing that I want to like, I always like try to push on people is the racing industry is so in the public eye that when something happens, they have to fix it. And they have to fix it quick. You've oh, yeah. all seen the PETA videos of racing. You've never seen a PETA video about barrel racing or show jumping or anything like that. So when we, when anything goes wrong, 
anything, the racing industry has to correct and correct quickly because we are in the global eye. And yeah, and as yeah, and you bring up a, a very valid point. It's because the spotlight is on the race industry at all times. Barrel racing is not um, an event coming from a guy in the barrel world. It's not an event where everyone gets together and and watches the barrel racing portion of the NFR every year and makes a huge party. Some people do. It's not yeah. like the Kentucky Derby or the Preakness or the Belmont. Yeah. And like one thing that I, I always love when people point out is like, well, you have the death statistics in racing. And I'm like, name a single other equestrian sport that actually tracks injury statistics, death statistics, drug violation statistics. Like you can find that information, but it's not tracked. It is not public information. It is not heavily recorded. But the racing industry is. And it's because we've had a negative past. We have gone through bad patches. And I will say it's that way because right now racing is trending forward and it is trending in the way of getting better oh yeah baby steps but still i see the positive light that is coming from it from the racing industry having to change well and uh, and some people are saying down in the comments well peter makes videos about rodeo all the time and that they do they work very yeah. hard about rodeo but rodeo as uh is an umbrella term for a lot of different sports that have their own individual industries inside of them yeah uh, you know, they'll talk about rough stock one day, but you never see them, you know, honing in on something like barrel racing or pole bending or breakaway roping. It is yeah. of animals in rodeo is usually what you hear them say. They have the tip of the spear pointed at thoroughbred racing. They really do. And it goes from the Kentucky Derby all the way down to your little tracks like Arapahoe, Evangeline Downs, Mountaineer. It goes through all of those channels, like every single aspect of the racing industry, from breeding to nurse mares to uh, even off the track. People are sitting there with, with a spear aimed at them, ready to find any little piece of ammunition to try and tear the industry down. Well, in, in reality, a lot of those folks, and, and I would love to say I mean this in the best way, but wholeheartedly, I do not. Um, and that is... The reality is, is a lot of these folks, they don't want you to own a horse. They don't want you to ride a horse. They don't want nope. you to bring this live. And they would much rather see something die trying to make it on its own than be in the care of, of someone else. Thoroughbreds included. They will uh, cut the knees out from under an industry. Even And we know the racing industry is not perfect. It is far from perfect. Absolutely. I'm the first person to stand up and, and yell and scream and, and get upset and get angry. And people are like, I thought you liked that industry. And I'm like, I'm, I love it. I'm passionate about it. That's why I get so angry when there are fixes out there, but people aren't implementing them. I think the, I think the race industry looks so bad and is cast as such a bad light is because the light is on the industry so hard that when anything comes up, it is national news. Yes. Uh, you know, if 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 someone at the NFR gets caught doping a barrel horse, it might come up, it might not even come up in barrel horse news. It might come up in barrel horse news or somebody in a Facebook group might share a link from an industry page. And that's as far as it would probably go. In the well, what industry was it? Was it the National Reining Horse Association that that allows like doping up to a certain percentage at this point? Or I, so I, I thought that 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 was big news, like 
last fall or something like that, right before December, I feel like that was like a, a big news piece that dropped and everyone was like, excuse me, how are you even doing that? And like, that's the first time I've really seen the horse industry at large that upset with anything in the, in the Western world. Yeah. Well, the AQHA is now, they're starting to, uh, they're starting to wake up to a lot of the things that people are complaining about. You know, you're starting to see, uh, the Western pleasure folks, the, the horses that a lot of us sometimes will call it jokingly, the peanut rollers. Mm -hmm. Um, and you're, you know, there's a lot of push for those horses to be tested now, um, for, you know, injection sites into the neck and be tested for drugs, um, and stuff like that. So, I mean, it's across the board that you see it. It's just, it always seems to be national news when anything happens, uh, in the racing world. Uh, Barbaro. Barbaro was national news for months. I can tell you plenty of barrel horses that are NFR qualified horses that were put down early and you never saw them on CNN or Fox or ABC or CBS. I kind of think of Barbaro the way that a lot of people think about Seabiscuit. Like Barbaro in many ways was the nation's horse. We all saw what happened that day at the Freakness. We all went through the, like people who aren't even horse people cared. They turned on their TVs. They saw a horse that won the Kentucky Derby with no urging from the whip, ears pricked, happier than could ever be, shattered its leg. And it was it was massively impactful. And it even had a massive impact on me. I remember, because Bar Barbara stayed alive for about a year, year and a half after that accident between them trying to save him. And that that's a conversation for a different day. Oh, yeah. Uh, but... But at the same time, like, I remember I watched one more Kentucky Derby after Barbaro. And in, and since then, well, now it's got to think, that was 2005. Since then, I have not actually physically sat down and, like, okay, we're watching the Kentucky Derby today. It's more like, if it's on, it's on. But it's, it, it hurt me in a way. I know it's hurt a lot of people in the industry, too. It hurt me in a way that I, it just did not sit right with me. And it, it was devastating and even just now thinking about it like that me and you had had this conversation previously without I, I don't think there's a doubt in anyone's mind Barbara would have been a triple crown winner yeah well and you know this one thing that came out of the Barbara thing and I know me and you have, have have talked about it before is that you know personally we kind of feel that maybe it was dragged out a little too long you know yeah. even though, you know I'm not a vet and I know the vets were telling the owners hey we're, we're seeing we're seeing positive here Oh yeah, we had a setback, but we can take care of the setback, you know. And I would not want to be in their shoes. I would not be wanting to make the decision. No. They ultimately, at the time, made the right decision for that horse. But one thing that they got to see from the industry that they typically did not get to see is compassion. Absolutely, abs, absolutely. And it, it felt like the Triple Crown that year itself. Just everything about it was kind of cursed with what we did with, with what we went through when we lost eight bells. Yeah. And everything that year just seemed to be a, it seemed to be a cursed year in racing. And, but I also remember like throughout the entire Barbara situation, there were people lined outside that vet's office with, with pictures and, and poster boards wishing that horse well. And like I said, some of them weren't even horsey people. They were just people who turned it, who tuned into the triple crown every year because it was a fun celebration. And they never watch another race, but they'll watch yeah. Crown, or at least the Kentucky Derby. Yeah. But, uh, 
yeah, uh, so gravity, gravity, gravity is talking about down in the comments. And I want to include some comments as we go. Um, talking about uh, harness racing. First of all, can I say I wish harness racing was as popular as quarter horse racing? I know. I have a, I have a friend who said his harness racing, and she, her uh, a friend of hers just had a horse make a big win at Yonkers yesterday. And I was sitting there like, yes, oh, my God, I love it. We have a harness track here in Aiken. It's the coolest thing ever. First of all, the jockeys, are they called jockeys in harness racing? I believe so. Anyway, we're going to. I'm going to. Either jockeys or drivers. I think it's kind of interchangeable. I'm going to tell you right now the. Those guys. That's a totally different level of, uh, of jockey, driver, whatever. Yeah. The, the amount of drip those guys have, holy cow. And the, the relationship that they have with the other jockeys. Mm-hmm. Oh. I love it. It's just like they're all they've just got all these huge personalities over which we see that thoroughbred racing too with jockeys. Oh, absolutely. And you know, you have the the upper crust that are kind of you know, and I, Mike Smith, one of my favorite jockeys of all time. Mike Smith isn't partying in the barn. No, 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 no. But the majority of these harness race guys that I've noticed, they have that personality that they're like, Yeah, we'll have a beer in the barn and then you know, they're always making TikToks. Like you'll see harness jockeys. Oh, absolutely. And like a lot of the, a lot of the, like, like you said, the non upper echelon, I would say like the non 1% jockeys are sitting there in the jockey's room. And like when the apprentice wins their first race, they do the football thing where they dump the thing of Gatorade over them and they're constantly pulling pranks and just being silly. I do want to address one quick question before we get too deep into the harness racing. Cause someone asked, what is harness racing? Ooh. And a really great question for us to ask, uh, answer seeing as some people aren't into the horse industry that big. Harness racing is kind of what you would expect. It is a, it's known as a sulky, and it is a cart pulled behind a horse that is pacing, not trotting, pacing. It is the, what is it? I'm trying to think of the terming, terming for it. It's like both front, both left legs on the horse will move in unison instead of diagonally, like with a trot. But well, one thing you got to add, the pace is actually the fastest gait for that horse. Absolutely. Absolutely. I've known pacers that can pace faster than my horse can canter. Like, it's insane. We actually, uh, gravity is actually a part of the racing, uh, the harness racing industry. And they said pacing or trotting. Okay. Oh, yeah, there are trotting. I'm, she's 100% right. So, and I have read that too. There are, um, there are trotting standees. Yes. And oh well, yeah, we know they can canter, but as far as on the racetrack, the pace is there. If I'm not mistaken, the pace is the fastest gate that has the best balance for the racetrack. Correct me if I'm wrong. Yeah. We'll, we'll move. We'll we'll move ahead with what we're talking. And more sound assist. <laughs> and more sound assist. <laughs> uh, yeah. So there we go. Pace is faster okay. than the truck. Okay. Freeds that are. Um, but so back on talking about aftercare and thoroughbreds and some of the things that we are we're seeing these days which are really some of the things that we have seen through the the eons with the thoroughbred i think a lot of people has the mentality that the thoroughbred is a purely just a racehorse that's all it will ever be is just a racehorse um 
and they forget about all the other jobs that thoroughbreds do and do not only just well but exceptionally well. Exceptionally. Hop out and hop back in. I got a lot of editing to do. She'll be right back. But a lot of folks, uh, you know, they forget about all these other jobs that, that thoroughbreds do. Hopefully when Jesse comes back, um, there she is. How's that? Yeah. I, Georgia Buckaroo just automatically right off the bat goes, oh, well, quarter horses do everything better. We're going to get into something here in a second that's probably going to shock you. Can I, can I say it, Ryan? Can I say it? Can I say it? Go, go ahead and do it. There was a point in time the American Quarter Horse Association had to ban thoroughbreds from their racing because it was all thoroughbreds who held records. And there's the another thoroughbreds literally came in and stomped them in every single one of their racing records. Yeah. So they, they used to race hand in hand. Uh, quarter horses and thoroughbreds at one point in time in history would race together on 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 uh, quarter racing tracks and the you know the old story and everything we've ever been told is that uh, you know at short distances the quarter horse is you know the lean mean machine you know at short burst of speed nothing can beat it and then at one point in time still is the breeding of the thoroughbred had actually eclipsed and i want to i want to bring up a very valid point that the AQHA is a performance horse registry. It just happens to have some cow and ranch horses and pleasure horses in it. At its inception, it was a performance horse registry. If you go and look at yeah. their statement, their mission statement is the improvement and betterment of the American quarter horse, not the preservation of a particular mm -hmm. historical type of horse. It's the reason exactly. they're, still, they're still an appendix to that stud registry and a reason why uh, thoroughbred in quarter horse horses there are quarter horses out there that just have about that much quarter horse in them when you look at their breeding because it's register of merit on top of register of merit on top of register of merit mm -hmm. and there's quite a few people that said that in those comments shots fired but uh that everything that, of that. everything better so much better and i'm like uh-huh uh-huh it's not because of all the thoroughbred that's in there that's not me tooting the thoroughbred's horn that's yeah. me that's me giving a big kudos to the AQHA and going, this is genetic diversity. Mm -hmm. This is also building the type of horses that, that we see in the type of sports that we are involved in. Yes. And, you know, me personally, I like running bred quarter horses. And when you look at running bred quarter horses, the majority of them resemble. If you look at them from shoulder back, a lot of those horses resemble a lot of thoroughbred. Yeah, and one thing that I think is really interesting, too, is when you look at the thoroughbreds that really influenced the quarter horse, and, like, one of my favorites to go back to is Staunch Avenger. If you look at Staunch Avenger, who is a massive barrel stallion, and look at his confirmation photos, you would, like, no no way you would ever think he was a thoroughbred. You're like, oh, quarter horse, hands down, hands down, quarter horse. And I'm like, no, that, that boy is 100% thoroughbred. That horse was... He's jockey club registered. He ran as a thoroughbred. He just managed to get picked up by someone out west and started being bred to a bunch of quarter horse mares. And he ended up being a really nice barrel uh, barrel daddy. But at the same time, I feel like I, I get a little hyped up about it because I've, I've even had my show jumpers my that I run on barrel races whoop a quarter horse's butt. And it's just like people get upset with, by it. And I'm like, 
these horses are bred to run. And when you train them right, there's not a damn thing they can do. And I feel like that's the big thing I wish people understood about thoroughbreds. They're not hot. They're not crazy. They're not psychotic. They're bred to have a dang job. Mm-hmm. And, and I'll be honest you. Give them a job. They're going to succeed. I would much rather take an off the track, uh, an off the track four year old, maybe did not have a great career, and work with that horse than take a two year old that spent two years on range untouched. That's mm-hmm. highly bred quarter horse line. Again, I'm not knocking quarter horses. I love quarter horses, but one of the reasons why I love quarter horses is the diversity in quarter horses there is a line for everything and the reason that is is because they've allowed that because again the aqha in my opinion did it right yeah with what they were attempting to do they did it right you know it is there's a reason why there's what almost four million horses registered with the aqha yep um but one thing i do want to talk about is you have to have a bunch of different lines for everything in the quarter in the quarter horse meanwhile you can take a former stakes racing winner from a thoroughbred line, throw him out on range, and within a couple of weeks, he'll be sitting there getting after cows like a Hancock. Well, you Ears brought- mouth open, fully ready to eat that mofo. <laughs> well, you brought up a really cool program, and it was from uh, Gate to Great. Yep. And it's a gentleman, and I'll let you get into that, but the, the synopsis is that you, you got a gentleman that takes off the track thoroughbreds and introduces those horses, among other things, to ranch work. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. And like the whole, the whole synopsis of his program is yes, he takes these horses who varied in success. I've seen horses from his program come over from the UK that are massive UK stakes winners. And he does, he, he brings them to his ranch out in South Dakota and they're started on cows. They are brought to brandings. They are treated just like any other ranch quarter horse. And they're ridden 365 days a year. If they feel like going to the local uh, rodeo, they're going to the local rodeo on these horses. And I feel like that. I feel like that's a really good program that encompasses the fact that so long as these horses have a job and someone with an ounce of understanding, they're gonna succeed. And that whole program got founded because the gentleman who founded it, Dale, was a racing trainer. He had his racing license in six different states. Mm-hmm. but he also was a ranching boy and the only horses he had accessible to him at the time were his race horses. So in the off season, those horses were taken to the ranch and ridden on range to keep them fit both physically and mentally. And that's, that leads me kind of down a whole little tangent on cross training thoroughbreds and, you know, some differences in different country programs. But and we, we talked about this here. and it brings up a very valid point. Why the, the overwhelming majority of us that are in love with thoroughbreds and want to see thoroughbreds succeed, we're pushing so hard for crown pride to win the Kentucky Derby mm-hmm. because of crown prides. The, the whole program around crown pride was crown, crown pride is a racehorse. <coughs> only be a racehorse. He's going to be a, he's going to be a saddle horse. Yes. He's already doing beautiful, soft, bendy 20 meter circles. Dressage as part of his warm up. Yes. I mean, doing circle work in dressage but here's the thing it's not that unheard of here in the u.s it's just it's somewhere between not unheard of and rare uh zenyatta's little sister they when she first started racing they tried doing cross training with her she actually did jump training she did dressage training but here's the thing in america we are so streamlined to the idea of big racing 
that whenever we don't receive immediate success from anything outside of that outlier, it's kind of pushed aside. So when you have that one horse that is cross-trained and it doesn't become a Kentucky Derby winner, oh, this program can't work. Meanwhile, what I wish they would see is like when you go over to the UK and Ireland, they have, those horses are out hacking. They are going up and down hills. They'll go over sand. They'll go over turf. They'll ride over the cobblestones in town to get from the barn to the training field. And they are doing so much with these horses. And then people ask me commonly, well, like, why is UK and England and, you know, European racing better? And I'm like, that's why. Those horses are race training, absolutely. But in a way that actually promotes the horse's body and promotes their body awareness and promotes muscling and lets them in many ways be a normal ridden horse. I, I think Rancher wants to know why whenever I'm I'm talking about uh, racing and ranching and stuff like that, that I don't bring up quarter horse. I think that's the question he's had. Why, you know, if I, why don't it's, it's because I can't throw a rock without hitting one. Um, and I love them. I, I, I I love them. I love quarter horses for so many reasons, but, um, you know, we forget about Morgan lines on ranches and there's whole ranches that breed Arabs. There's whole ranches Mm -hmm. that have thoroughbreds. Um, and those horses never, those horses never really get highlighted And, and they're doing some incredible work, doing some amazing jobs and they're doing it just as well as their, their counterparts. And I always, I'm, I'm a history guy, you know, the, when the American quarter horse went west, it was not the American quarter horse. It was a quarter runner. And it went west with a little horse called the Morgan. And it went west with an imported horse known as the Cleveland Bay. And at one point in time, the Cleveland Bay was the tallest hog in the trough. And, mm-hmm. you know, it's another horse that's forgotten. But the Cleveland Bay should be the horse that won the west, in my opinion. Because the Cleveland Bay went in everything. The reason the, the, the quarter got its size was from the Cleveland Bay. The reason the Arab turned to the thoroughbred was the Cleveland Bay. Yeah. And so that's why I want to highlight a lot of these horses. You know, I've done so many history videos on the American Quarter Horse just because their history is so rich, especially um, when you're a Western guy like me. And it, like, I, I, I want to interject one small thing. And, in fact, and it is the fact that ranching and racing, absolutely, especially in the Quarter Horse world, can go hand in hand. And I'm going to name one ranch. And it's the four sixes. The four sixes, and don't forget King King Ranch. <laughs> yeah, the, the King Ranch. I'm saying the four sixes because I like just about every major racing stallion I can think of over the last like my lifetime. Mm-hmm. Four sixes, four sixes, four yep. sixes, four sixes. <laughs> like they are the they are the Claiborne Farm of. Oh yeah, if if I'm not mistaken, Deck, a prolific sire mm-hmm. of quarter horses who happen to be a thoroughbred. Um, if I'm not mistaken, it was a product of King Ranch. Yes, he was. Um, and then, you know, we can't forget horses like Three Bars. And I I'm, can't believe I forgot where Three Bars was at. We forget about Three Bars. Prolific sire of American, American Quarter Horse Hall of Fame horse. Thoroughbred. Yep. But, but and I want to bring that to light. I want people to be more comfortable with talking about other horses and I want them to get more interested in other horses too. Um, because as lovers of the horse, the, the, there are so many horses that go into making a particular breed and a lot of those horses still exist and they have a lot in common and they're still useful and they're all gorgeous in their own right. And they all do things so well. Yes. And I feel like you brought up a really great segue to talk about, 
you know, thoroughbreds haven't just influenced the quarter horse. Just about every single warm blood breed out there has been influenced by the thoroughbred, some more than others. Like it, like me and a lot of my friends, we we joke that the Celle Francais is just French for thoroughbred yeah. because they were so heavily bred with your Anglo Arabs and your thoroughbreds um, and your French trotters that right, they are that, basically at this point <laughs> French thoroughbreds. Well, when you but when you look um, at warm bloods these days, like when you look at Dutch warm bloods and things like that, um, when you when you really start looking at those horses' confirmations, I see a thoroughbred. I, 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 it's funny enough. I can stand there pinpoint how much influence they have by their body because I've seen up some Dutch warm bloods that they do. They look like draft crosses. They still got them big, heavy bones, ears to rival a mule. And I'm like, okay, that, that's a Dutch warm blood that has, has not seen an ounce of thoroughbred in, in 10 generations. <laughs> and that, that's because they bred. And that's exactly what they did though, is they took those heavy draft horses and they needed to create a lighter a lighter farming horse and they bred it with thoroughbred and that's how you got your warm bloods and the warm bloods needed to be horses that could pull a plow one day and ride into town the next yeah well and you know the warm bloods were warm bloods get and this ties into thoroughbreds you know the the warm bloods were another one of those horses and they're kind of reminiscent of something past and those are kind of dual purpose horses. Like we don't see a lot of dual purpose horses. Again, I bring up the Cleveland Bay. That's the epitome of dual purpose horse. Absolutely. Uh, and the, the warm bloods, we see these highly refined warm bloods that are just excelling at English sport. Now, yeah. don't get me wrong. I have seen quite a few warm bloods just getting after cows. And you might think I'm crazy. You know, me and CJ trailer, uh, another TikToker had this whole conversation that if it's left up to us, we'd have ranches full of warm bloods and Cleveland days and stuff like that. Because when it comes to just agility, speed, brains, they got it all. Well, if you really want to dive down the rabbit hole, yes, the warm blood was meant to be a dual purpose horse. And then, you know, when wars broke out, they and they didn't have a ton of cavalry horses. They went to farms and they took the horses from the farms. So they took those warm bloods that were meant to be plow horses one day and riding horses the next and turned them into cavalry horses, which then, you know, just, it kind of just progressed. And then we got the development of horse sports. So you got the development of dressage on my, my cavalry horse can do this so much better than your cavalry horse. Well, my cavalry horse can gallop for five miles without getting tired. Like, yeah, that's well, where that whole that that's where our sport comes from, and that's where. And then you did you had the racing stallion, the thoroughbreds and stallions that became cavalry horses, and that's where we got our things such as steeple chasing and timber chasing and timber chasing, and things like that, and the long format of um, of, of eventing. Field trials are yes. a good of what cavalry officers would do on their time off. Um, mm -hmm. Hunting used to be. Um, Hunting used to be something that was pushed by cavalry units on mm -hmm. the end. Listen, you know, we're not doing anything for a month. I would suggest you guys go on a hunt. Yeah. You absolutely. know, hunting was, it was a huge deal to a lot of these men. You know, after, you know, we saw this, we saw this in Europe um, pre-World War One, And where it got really popular in the U.S. was right after the war. Yep is right after World War One, in the 1920s, 
you saw such a, and again, it was where we saw the uh, a resurgence of horses like the Cleveland Bay. Uh, and we saw uh, more things like what we would call today warm bloods uh, being bred and imported into the U.S. is because things like English sport were really catching off. And all of that comes back to movements and drills and exercises that were in cavalry manuals. Mm-hmm. And someone got the idea that, you know, it'd be great if my saddle horse could do this. Yeah, absolutely. And um, like going back even that far, I think uh, Bonhui was, I think, late 20s, early 30s, somewhere in that range. And he was. He was a thoroughbred stallion with the Whitney family. And I mean, like the Whitney handicap Whitney family. And he and they had a whole string of thoroughbreds that, you know what, they got tried on the track. And if they didn't make it to the track, well, they're going to go be saddle horses and show jumpers and field hunters and fox hunters. And I feel like that's when I... I am loving my A Race Horse Did That series because it is opening my eyes to just, especially here in the U.S., all of the significant ties between the major breeding farms and off-the-track thoroughbreds. They have always, always, always gone hand-in-hand. And one thing that I always love to bring up, too, is, like, medical advances in the equine world. Racing is the most funded equine industry on the planet. Do you think they're really out there testing mobile x-rays on a ranch horse? No, they were testing it on the racehorse that broke its its leg, and they need to see if that horse will ever run again. And every industry gets to benefit from what the race industry has done. And again, this is not so much tooting the racehorse's horn as in, listen, when we get behind this stuff, it trickles down to everything else. I did see about Air to Dare. I'm actually really good friends with Nick, and um, I, I got the news through a text message about uh, her mayor, sadly, uh, passing away um, due to complications from Wait colic. The mayor, she was getting ready to breed? Oh, no. Yeah, Air, uh, air, pass, uh, air, air to Dare uh, fold had, had some complications with the birth colicked and was like recovering from the colic and overnight went uh septic and sadly passed away oh i hate that and uh, very thankfully the philly took to a nurse mare very well mm-hmm. and uh i i love nick uh nick actually went mentioned that dare had been a nurse mare in one of her previous years and so it's kind of a nice little full circle moment and I'm, I'm glad that she's finding some 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 positivity from it because i know how how hard grief can hit the horse industry um and I'm, I'm just happy for her that she is finding some uh positive to help her get through this right now but that's one thing that i do want to i feel like that's another part of the racing industry and the off-track industry that we need to mention is the nurse mare industry because I feel like there's a lot of misconception that kind of surrounds that where they breathe it like, are you familiar with any of the misconceptions about the nurse mares or what they say happens? Um, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, you say but, ever so cautiously. <laughs> no, no, there is one part and that is, um, what are they called? The, the surrogate mares. Yeah. Now I've seen part of that industry and yeah, I'm not a fan there are, there are good parts and there are bad parts to it. And I feel like it, I feel like with everything else, it kind of goes with the scale of the operation. The big scale operations tend to have some of the practices that make our skin kind of crawl a little bit. But when you see it on the small level. Yeah. 
it's like, oh, okay, this this is something that 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 it's not a total evil. So I have a uh, I have a uh, a mutual it's a mutual friend between another friend, um, and I will not say their name or who they work for. I will say it's probably one of the largest surrogate uh, uh, mare farms uh, in Kentucky um, for for AI and. Um, yeah, it, it's horrible. It it is, yeah, and, and like I said, it, it's a. He's at though in in thoroughbreds because that's all live cover. Yeah, yeah, and but that's the thing is it's another one of those things that people uh, people attach to the racing industry because we again it's one of those industries that is so in the public eye that when a, we lose a mare and a nurse mare gets shipped in, people don't realize that nurse mare was probably being used for warm bloods or quarter horses and just so happened to get now be nursing a thoroughbred baby like it wasn't it wasn't specifically from the thoroughbred industry but it's also something that i see in all aspects of the industry i've known warm blood owners that have had to use nurse mares i've known quarter horse people who've had to use use nurse mares and i feel like it's one of those things that we need it needs to get talked about more and the good and the bad sides of it yeah well and the good sides of this is you got to look at it. I look at it this way when it comes to nurse mares. And that is, you know, without the nurse mare, we have a dead foal. Yeah. Uh, nine times out of 10, because horses are hard as hell to try to bottle. They, um, they definitely try to bottle horses. It's not like bottle calves or bottle goats. It's this is a totally different, totally different scenario here. And especially if you lose that mare at birth and there was colostrum was not involved. Uh, yeah, then it's level of complication. Yeah, so the these nurse mares and at a small level, I'm with you wholeheartedly. You don't see the uh, the things you see. That, you know, of course, somebody's going to try to farm that out and turn it into a a streamlined uh, factory business where there's constantly mares and milk on standby. Yeah, and I actually feel like that. That's. That, that might be a good segue to talk about kind of like the good and the bad of the racing and, and how that affects our off-track thoroughbreds. Because uh, I know we talked about it last time we had tried filming this when we lost everything. Yeah. But um, trainers like Bob Baffert, I I know in my mouth, his name feels like a sin. And I know that and many of my other big racing industry friends to where when you have trainers who have, you know, 125 horses in a stable and they have stables at three different uh, tracks across the country, that's where we see the bad sides of racing. That's where we get the stereotypes. That's where all of the negative press kind of starts to come in. But then we have trainers like Richie's trainer. Eric Reed. That man knows every single horse in his barn. He knows their daily schedule. He knows what peppermint or what carrot they prefer. He knows everything about those horses. And he and he hires any hires grooms that have personal connections that have the ability to have personal connections with horses. Yeah. And and I don't think that's something a lot of people understand. When Eric Reed hires a groom. He didn't just hire somebody who is a show barn groom or has a history in the, 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 the training industry or a history in the racing industry. I mean, no, 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 no. He wants a groom that goes to work every day in love with horses. I, I, absolutely. Absolutely. I feel like, I feel like that's where I got a lot of my education too. Like, like I, 
grew up a lot on the like the western farms but all the western farms i was at out in wyoming had racing connection on some level and like it was that level of you go to work and you love these animals and i don't i don't care if you're sitting there having to take care of 10 horses a day you know those horses inside outwards you know they're every bump scrape you know every you know how long it takes them to eat a handful of feed and i feel like that made a big difference in who i was yeah as a horseman well and i think that and i think that was one of the good things though on the training side we didn't get crown pride but on the positive light side we got eric reed and rich strike yes as, as the big as as the you know still the show this year's triple crown or last year's triple crown yeah and you know we got a guy who shines a positive light in my opinion and I, listen eric reed is a race trainer so it's still the racing industry and it's not perfect okay I'm not saying Eric Reed is a perfect man and he's perfect with horses. What I'm saying is, is in an industry full of Bob Bafferts, be Eric Reed. Yeah. When Eric Reed's barn burned and horses died, that man dropped his knees and cried and was done with the industry. He was wanting to get out. He's like, I'm done. I can't deal with this. Yeah. You know, and was begged to get back in. And Richie was one of the reasons, you know. And by the way, I love Rich Strike. I don't care. He's an asshole, but he's my kind of asshole. Like, but can we? I want to talk about Rich Strike for a moment. I, I thought more about him, and I feel like he is what people think of when they think of some of the racehorse stereotypes. But I also feel like what they don't understand is that horse is a very, very fit, highly athletic stallion. Like at the end of the day, like yeah, he's gonna be. He's like he's a teenage boy. He's yeah. gonna be an asshole. Richie is no different than a, a quarter horse at that age with that level of training. Exactly. In, he's no different than a warm blood. He's no different than an Arabian or any other horse that's intact at that age competing at that level on that diet. Exactly. Exactly. And that is something that transpires every single sport, every single breed. And, but when people want to say bad things about racing, like I can guarantee you there are people who sit there and are like, all oh, racehorses are crazy. Just look at Rich Strike. And I'm like, gravity brought up a, a horse very- that absolutely loves his job and is willing to kill someone to do it. Like, don't we always yeah. be happy like well, that? <laughs> yeah. Gravity brought up a really valid point for your study that came off after the race of his life. And a lot of people, a lot of people don't understand is as the pack kept moving, they were trying to stop Richie. So they could put cameras in his face. Yeah. And in, in a horse's mind, he goes, we are still racing. They're still yeah. going. Why am I stopping? Exactly. Exactly. Oh, and ugh, I have to bring it up because I, as much as I, I live in America, I will worship European racing because when you have like Adrian O'Brien, that man has, he's kind of like. Bob Baffert level of how many horses he has underneath him. But he knows every single horse. You can guarantee he tries to walk through that barn and pet every single horse every single day. Get verbal confirmation from their grooms on how the horse is doing, how the horse is going, how how they eat their feet this morning. Like, they know over in Europe, they have a genuine, the trainers have a genuine love of their horses. Even if it's 125 horses that they have underneath them. It's only here in America that we have these factory type trainers well we see it too in places like australia and south africa yes we see these trainers that are heavily invested emotionally into these horses Mm -hmm. and 
Zealand is another New Zealand is another really big one. Um, oh. A goofy gizmo goes in the way strike. Uh, the way they strike a pose off the track. Listen, there's nobody who is a camera hog as much as Rich Strike. I don't know. It, it, have you ever noticed all the other horses will just file past? And if Rich Strike sees a camera, he will stop and look at it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I love it. We, we talked about this last time. And it's I swear to God, whenever a racehorse wins a race, it changes their brain chemistry. That they know, they know, they know, and it could be 10 years later. And they, if they hear their name come over a sound system, they're like, oh, I know you're talking about me. Where's the camera? Oh, yeah. Who do I look, I look good for? <laughs> I, and that's one thing I love about them. I hope Rich Strike eventually goes somewhere where he stands at stud, where the pub, he's accessible by the public. Yes. Because yeah. I, I want to I see him retired and I got to meet him one day. Like, I hope he does a tour. Like, a lot of horses would do a tour at, like, the Kentucky Horse Park or something for a month or so. I hope one of the horses that gets to do that, because I will just spend two weeks and go every day for two weeks and just be like, morning, Richie. You know, I mean, I am in love with this horse. And the reason I'm in love with this horse is just the story of the people around this horse. And I think that's a good light to be shined on the industry. You know what made me think of another horse? The what is it? The fifty to one uh, champion, mind that bird. That horse was that horse came from another little ranching trainer yeah. in the middle of Texas. That horse had no business being at the Kentucky Derby. Long and sh- what's up now is ranch, ride in parades, and yeah. and live live the high life. I think mind that bird was another long shot. Like yeah, he was like a fifty to one odds. Yeah, he was a nobody. He he! I think he literally only got an access to the Kentucky Derby because like two horses scratched, and he he managed to have just enough points to like get uh to get part of the to be part of the Kentucky Derby, but that's another horse that has a trainer that still owns him, still loves him, still adores him. Oh yeah. Oh, and that's how I ended up with this hat. So this is a um, this is the the forty seven brand hat. This came from. Someone in Louisville, Kentucky, that works for the uh, print shop that they called the day before and said, we don't have anything. We need something that says Rich Strike on it. Can you make us something? And this is one of them. That's cool. And I had, uh, I can't remember your name right now. I apologize. Um, But someone heard me making a video about Rich Strike. And they asked me about the address, and they said they worked for the print shop, and they had a bunch of them. Now they sell them. Um, but they sent one to me, and this was one of the original run hats for Eric Reed and Richie's owner. And I, I have one. And I'm wearing I wore it for you for this episode. So. Well, thank- I don't wear this hat very often because of just what it is. Mind that, uh, mind that bird was a gelding, yes. Yes. Um. And I want to tell you, I want to kind of reshift back because we talked we talked about quarter horses, we've talked a little bit about warm bloods, we've talked a lot about racing. Let's talk a lot about the off track aspect of it because I know that's that's why you you have me here today. Yeah, so I'll let you kick that off because I know your your mind is going ninety to nothing right now. But <laughs> got to tell these people. Yeah, so like obviously, um, I know you 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 told me that you thought of me with this because of my a racehorse did that series and. 
Um, for anyone who does not know, I'm doing a series called A Racehorse Did That, where I literally sit there and I talk about off-the-track thoroughbreds. And it's I talk about series. Huh? It's an amazing series, by the way. Thank you. Thank you. And I love the fact that I'm learning so, like I said, I'm learning so much about the horses that have shaped my life, who have done everything from make make the U.S. Olympic winners again to horses like, you know, like Popcorn Delights, who was just a celebrity. And realistically, that horse was a racing reject. He was a claimer for years, even after Seabiscuit came out. But that horse had such an impact on the culture surrounding horses. Does, does this mean we get to talk about my love affair with Boyd Martin and his horse? Yes. Yes. Okay. By the way, by the way, we still we, we need everyone to go ta- go go find my video on Neville Bardos and keep spam tagging Boyd because we all need we all need a video about Neville Bardos and see how he is doing. <laughs> because yeah. I, I don't think there's a horse of his that I stand more than Neville. <laughs> You know, the, the crazy thing is, is for those that don't know, I've I've met Boyd Martin in all places, the grocery store, because he does spend time in Aiken at times, and uh, met him in a Publix, uh, the most polite human being you ever want to meet, um, and you can always tell the character of somebody uh, when they think no one's looking, mm-hmm. he's just like us, like he's just kind, oh, yeah. genuine, like what you would expect him to be from his persona on camera, that's Boyd Martin in real life. Oh, absolutely! He's he's, just, he's so American. He anything but himself, and he's I love the most American Australian I have ever met. Like he is all Mister Red, White, and Blue. It doesn't matter where he was born. Yeah, all America. Oh yeah, and <laughs> he's he's another person that I feel like whenever we mention people who genuinely care about their horses, and I'm going to bring it up because I'm going to bring up Neville. That man ran into a burning barn, and because of Neville's cribbing collar, was able to pull that horse from the fire. Yeah. And that been in, had 45 minutes worth of smoke inhalation. His entire esophagus and trachea were burned to a crisp. The vets at Root and Riddle had no idea how he was even standing. Like, And meanwhile, that horse was just sitting there like, yo, like, what happened? That horse had no idea in the world. Like, it literally should not have been breathing, let alone the fact that it was even injured. Cool. And that, that was like the level of stoicism that I love for my off-the-track thoroughbreds and my racehorses. Like, when I say that the good ones don't, will not show an ounce of weakness even at their lowest they will not show an ounce of weakness for halloween this year i'm going as boyd martin in his american flag suit and i don't don't know if he it, but i'm going as boyd martin i mean man come out of a stall at the i almost said the rolex it's the land rover now in his american flag suit like that's what he wore yeah yeah i love it i i and that man has just you want to talk about someone who has a genuine love of racehorses like Boyd and his wife, Silva, like absolutely adore their thoroughbreds. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't matter if they're Australian bred, U S bred, like they understand the value that those horses bring. And one thing I love is that Neville Bardos is like in his twenties and that horse is still out there like being ridden. And when I say being ridden, I mean, he's not just out there hacking on trails. He is training one of Nev- one of Boyd's like students or apprentices. I'm not sure exactly what he is. How to go across like intermediate level cross country? Like that horse is still jumping massive fences as if he's five years old. Well, you know, and that brings up something I, I want to interject with really quick is, and that's what a lot of people they get so hung up on a horse's age from their birth date, and they pay so little attention to the horse's physiological age. 
because I know a lot of horses that are in their 30s, they're literally just eating um, forage and a ration balancer and are fat and slick and gorgeous. So just because your horse is 25, don't retire that horse if that horse is still in good condition and willing. My, my first horse, a uh, 26-year-old off-the-track thoroughbred. I mean, when he came to me, he was right off a slaughter pipeline in California. And, I mean, this is 2006, so it was actually, like, when slaughter pipelines were still a massive thing. Uh, not with eight kill pens, but, again, different video. And that we put 400 pounds on that horse over the winter. So when we brought him back to the woman that we had gotten him from, because she was hosting, like, a barrel racing clinic, she didn't even recognize it was the same horse. We dug into that horse's background a little bit. He was a rodeo horse. He had been ridden by National Forest Service Rangers. Like, there was nothing that that horse hadn't done. And right up to the point that he was actually, like, starting to develop lung problems and breathing problems, that horse would go around like a three-year-old, and he was 26 years old. That horse had no idea how old he was, so long as he was happy and had food. Well, yeah, we have a horse here, and he's he's kind of a he's kind of a local hero in our NBHA district, our Barrel Horse district. His name is Roller. He's twenty four, still runs one in duty two D times, Dang. Uh, and uh, he has taught probably more kids the art of the barrel pattern than any horse I've ever met. Uh, he's now blind in one eye. He's had that eye taken, so he's now one eye. You know, twenty something. <laughs> he's he looks great, like. I saw him recently, and it's been years since I had seen him. I thought we had lost him. You know what I mean? He, you know, you just you, you've been away for a while, and then you know you go to an event and rekindle old friendships and stuff. And this gal was on a horse, and was right near us. And I was talking to uh, my good friend that I knew that owned him, and I was like, "Well, I said, who are you running this day? Who's that?" And she goes, "That's Roller." And I go, "No." And Roller's twenty something years old, you know. And she goes. Watch him in a minute, and they ripped off a one D time. And I'm you know like, who that made scamper, scamper that that little bay barrel horse ran until he was in his thirties. You know, I love to hear someone like you and your <laughs> horses mention a horse like scamper. I had scamper's briar. Okay, scamper is the only thing that I hate is that, and I know we have. um I can't remember his name right now. Uh, Scamper's clone. Uh, yeah. I only wish Scamper had, was just intact. But you know what? Scamper intact could have been a completely different horse. Absolutely. And I like. I love the idea of cloning horses. I, I wish people understood, though, that it's not a guarantee of the exact same horse. Because how they are raised and the things that they go through and, and all that time that they were alive before they got into their owner's hands changes them and it makes them the horse that they are by the time that you know scamper's well, rider got yeah. have you ever seen my video scamper? Uh, huh have you ever seen my video on scamper i don't think i have my, so I, I did a video on scamper it's one of my early videos and you know how charmaine ended up with scamper right i cannot remember no so scamper ended up working at a feed lot just pushing cows and he got sold because he had a bad habit of dumping people randomly. And so he was just cold backed. And so he ended up getting bought and at the James family feedlot, one of the cowboys there, you know, was using him. And Charmaine was looking for a barrel prospect. She was just a little snot nosed kid. And uh, she saw him and she's like, oh, that's a good looking horse. 
And her dad's like, well, try him out. But I just can tell you right now, don't lope him. He'll dump you. And as soon as they weren't looking, the first thing she did was lope him. And he bucked like once and she laughed at him. <laughs> and then when that happened and she didn't unseat, he never did it again. I I love I love stories like that. That that reminds me of actually that reminds me of Neville. Silva wants to go ride Neville around his first cross country course at like at a competition. Dumped him at the sec dumped her at the second fence. And it took 15 minutes to catch him because that horse was like, no, like I have a job to do. I'm going to go finish the cross country course. And he literally did. He ran to the finish while Silva Martin was just lying at the second fence. Oh, no. And then Boyd, like he was like Neville was. He was just a hot piece of horse. And like he is every he is every bit of the hot, spicy thoroughbred stereotype, but in all of the best ways. And I wish people would realize that like, when you do come across a horse that is the true definition, the stereotype of hot, crazy thoroughbred, that ha- that horse has more athleticism than you will ever understand. Oh, yeah. But let's, all right, so we got to get back. We keep going down rabbit holes, and it's my fault. I did it. I, well, I mentioned Scamper. I, well, I mentioned Scamper. We were well, talking you, but about. Old- in my defense, it's hard to just bring up Scamper without going into Scamper because yeah. it doesn't matter the breed. There are just some truly unique horses that are blessings to people scamper is one of those horses absolutely and honestly like like i feel like we were talking about off the track thoroughbreds obviously and everything that they're amazing for but i feel like every time we do that we do have to acknowledge horses that are truly exemplary in their field that have never been to a racetrack horses like scamper because those horses are absolutely amazing and that's not to say that you know that doesn't take away from every thoroughbred that's made it to the NFR because there have like I think 2017 there were several off the track thoroughbreds that made it to the FN, uh, NFR. Oh yeah, um, I, but, I know there was a thoroughbred that an off the track thoroughbred that made it to the NFR in barrel racing. But it brings up a good segue into what the actual topic you know today is. Even though, like I say, like even though we keep going around, I think if we look at and quarter horses because if we look at quarter horse lines that have been really good cutters, rainers, whatever. Doesn't matter, Peppies, you know, uh, your your deck horses, mm-hmm. uh, your dock horses, uh, your freckles horses. If we go back to the foundation of those lines, it's always a racehorse. Always. It is always a racehorse. You know, the everybody wants to talk about Jet Deck. Jet Deck, absolutely amazing American quarter horse. Grandpa, top deck, thoroughbred. Racehorse. Horse. <laughs> you know, and uh, Joe Hancock. Joe Hancock was like a quarter percheron. Yeah. Joe Hancock was a racehorse. I yep. mean, as a quarter percheron, he was still a racehorse. And he wasn't a half bad one. No. He ran a lot of fairgrounds and stuff like that. Like, you know, he wasn't a... He wasn't running a lot of the quarter races that, you know, we see. Uh, I forget the name of the, the race that is considered the uh, Alameda. That's considered the quarter horse triple, uh, the quarter horse Kentucky Derby. Yes. Um, yeah. He, he, you know, he wasn't racing like that, but he was a racehorse. And, and to think that these rock crushing, cow eating, go all day machines uh, that we assume when we think about Hancock's started from a racehorse. Yeah. 
And me and you can dive down this rabbit hole all day, but it's a good dang rabbit hole to go down because, you know, I, I, I think you know where I'm going to go. And I'm going to talk about the remount program. Yes. I took literally some of the top thoroughbred stallions from Kentucky and brought them out to ranches in Wyoming, Montana, Utah, Kansas, everywhere, Texas. And they, what were they breeding? Grade mares, quarter horse mares, draft mares. And what did they create? What we can now consider to be your grade ranch horse that has feet like a damn dinner plate and will cro- rock crush all damn day long. I love how you said that. You're, you're taking my lines now, dinner plate feet. Love it. No, no, dinner plate feet, it, I've, I've been saying that for a while because my farrier says that, like, every farrier I've ever had has said that about my thoroughbred. Like, he has damn dinner plate hind feet, but he has your classic American thoroughbred front feet. You know, my looking like his dinner plates. My, my farrier loves my Morgan because he's like my little half Morgan. I, mm-hmm. I can't half Morgan. He goes, I love her feet. And I was like, why? Well, he goes, she got them damn dinner plate feet. Because mm-hmm. they're just nice, symmetrical, big, easy to take care of, just good, healthy feet. And I'm like, yeah, I said, you know, they're kind of disproportional, though, because she's barely 14 hands, and she's got <laughs> she's got feet like a halflinger. I mean, she, you know. I, I, it works on my horse because my horse when uh, my horse looks like an American thoroughbred. Like absolutely, when you when I show his fitness confirmation photo, everyone's like, "Yes, that 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 you can tell me that horse was a was a racehorse." But then I tell him he's sixteen hands, weighs four, where, uh, weighs fourteen hundred pounds, wears an eighty one inch blanket and a sixty inch girth, and they're like, "Excuse me," I'm like, "That horse is every bit of oil <laughs> barrel." like draft horseshoe i didn't have to shop draft for some things for him just got a mental image when you're talking about your horse having big back feet it's kind of like a dragster you know it's got big racing slicks on the back but little skinny tires up front well you want to know why he's turf bred they gotta have that grip on turf they dang do and he has he has he has joints to rival a draft cross and man you talked about this last time i love my Give me a draft. Give give me a good old turf bred horse. Any dang. I don't care if it's a gelding stallion mare. I don't care if it doesn't even know what the heck it is. I want it. See, I'm a I'm a I'm a big. Uh, so I'm weird when it comes to turf horses. Like I love listen. I love race horses just as a whole. But like turf fillies have like a special place in my heart. Like I just you know, it's, uh, I love them. Same. And I like I remember uh there was this big gray filly. Her name was Winter something or another. And it was like it was like I wanna say the mid twenty or like late late twenty twenty thousand two thousands, late early twenty tens. Oh my god, my brain injury is acting up again. <laughs> I can't speak. But she was like I don't think there was a single turf start that mare started in that she did not just absolutely crush from Saratoga to Aiken. Like she would start she started in steeplechases, she started on turf, and that filly would just go out there and crush everyone. And she did it in like, at the, like it was a Sunday stroll. Yeah. I mean, it, it's just, well, again, it just shows the, the versatility of, of the breed. It, there is a reason why the, again, and, and I'll say this again for like the third time, why there's an appendix to the quarter horse registry. Mm-hmm. It, you want that. You you want that in those horses. You you want that speed. You want that agility. You want that size because, you know, what we know today as a thoroughbred was not always the case 
for the thoroughbred. And thoroughbreds yeah. are all over the spectrum. Like there, yes. there are thoroughbreds that are 14 too. Like I've seen them. You yes. know. But the majority of these off the track thoroughbreds are in that 16, 17 hand range. Uh, yeah. Sometimes they're like Donald and almost 18 hands. Yeah. But, you know, these long strides, you want that in these compact horses. Absolutely. And I'm going to talk about two things that people don't commonly think of when breeding, but have absolutely, without a doubt, been bred into thoroughbreds. And that is their heart and their literal desire to work. And I, I every time I see a thoroughbred that went unraced and sat in someone's pasture until they were like seven before they decided to really like sit down and break them. Yeah. Those horses are the most psychotic. Like, no, like, like that horse was meant to do something from the time it was two years old. Not just sit there in your pasture and be pretty. Like, you, you, I, I've actually told someone that, like, you ra you ruined a good horse. My godmother, she that she bought she bought a little thoroughbred that never raced. She wanted her teenage daughter to grow up with it. That teen that horse was never saddle broke a day in his life. And when they finally got someone to work with them, that horse sent that person to the hospital. And I outright told him, like, you you ruined what could have been a really amazing horse. He was beautifully put together. And I, I'm sure that had he been put into a program where he, where they, where the focus was wet saddle pads, he would have thrived and he would have loved having a job. But that is something that is absolutely bred into thoroughbreds. And that's not to say that there aren't lazy thoroughbreds. There absolutely are. And I feel like uh, Flo's Donnie is a good example. That horse is 18 hands and you dang near break your leg just trying to get him to go forward. But at that same time, that horse loves having a job. And I feel like that's the big takeaways. These horses are meant and thrive when they have something to do. Yeah, the, un the unraced, unworked horses we've had at my university. Yeah, yeah. Thoroughbreds without a job is a recipe for disaster. And I will, I will say that until my dying breath. An unworked thoroughbreds are a disaster. Yeah. I, it takes a lot for me to say a horse has been ruined or a horse can't be helped. And I've helped a lot of horses, but those, those thoroughbreds who never knew a job a day in their life terrify me. So I just got a delivery. Ooh. Yeah. I don't, yeah. And they're pretty neat. I don't know what they are. They're signed. That's cool. There's three of them here. I don't know. Uh, yeah. That's actually some really nice artwork. Yeah, I might have to get those framed and matted. Yeah. They were uh, at a thrift store of all places. That's awesome. I'll take them. Uh, the artist is Alfred. Alfred. I think it's Alfred D. Barnett. Anybody knows him. Well, there you go. But, yeah, like I said, I feel like people don't think about the fact that, you know, that desire to work and the amount of heart and try that thoroughbreds have has absolutely been bred into the corridors and the appendix. And it's something that, you know, you know what? I've definitely seen bred out of horses as well. <laughs> but well, I feel like it's a major thing that we need to talk about. Yeah, it, well, and it's something that I think is it, it's common in uh, a lot of your. I don't want to offend anybody, but I guess I will. 
is something that you see kind of across the spectrum in horses that are considered performance horses. Yeah. It doesn't matter. I mean, thoroughbreds, warm bloods, quarter horses, Arabs, mm-hmm. standard breads. Yeah, absolutely. And like I said, I've even seen it bred out of horses. And I, when I say that, I mean, I, 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 there are definitely quarter horses that pop into my mind that have been bred so quarter horse. And I mean, I, when I say pokey, I mean, dude, horse, potato level pokey. And they're bred to be that way. And I'm just like, you, you have a quarter horse. Like, doesn't it want a job? Nah, it's totally fine. It's being, being ridden twice a year. And I'm like, uh-huh. Okay. But, so I, I had a third, an off the track thoroughbred. We called him Chevy, and I've got his paperwork somewhere. I, we he's unfortunately passed, but um, I've got his paperwork somewhere. I need to dig it up. I mean, get his jockey club name. Uh, race three times. Um, apparently did not have the heart for the track. Sometimes they don't. <laughs> he was uh. 17 hands, 17 two, something like that. He was a big boy, big boy. Uh, uh, bay boy with white socks. Gorgeous. It's absolutely gorgeous. His favorite speed was just at a leisurely walk. Absolutely. You could, he's a horse you could let sit for six months and he was perfectly fine. Go saddling, throw kids on him. And the girl I got that horse from, she goes, she goes, I got him straight from the track and he was like this. And some of them are like that. And like, like I'm not saying that doesn't happen in thoroughbreds, but it absolutely, it acts. It absolutely does. And like, there was one, there was a stallion that I wish I could have bought. His name was P42 Warhawk. And I mean, he was, oh my God, I, I hope whoever bought him never gelded him because the the amount of money they could have made advertising him as a as a as like a hunter horse stallion he was and he was steel gray he was gorgeous i remember randomly one day i turned on tvg and there he was running and when i say that horse took dead last they they stopped trying to count how many lengths he came in last they they just stopped trying. Like he like you could just tell that horse did not have the heart for it. But he had the most beautiful floaty trot on the planet. I mean, there were pictures of him and his trainer's kid. And I was like, that is a horse that that is a horse that deserves to keep his balls and deserves to spread them. Like <laughs> it deserves to spread that seed. That is gonna be a nice ass sport horse stallion. And I think I've reached out on OTTV Connect a couple of times and was like, hey, is any does anyone know what happened to this horse? And sure enough, he's out there being a show hunter and field hunter. And I'm like, sweet, perfect, awesome. And but he's, I, pro- and I he's probably gelded. He's, and the sad part is he's probably been gelded. Probably. I'm choosing to ignore that piece of information only because like when I say that I that that's a stallion I could have found it a breeding program with, he was that nice. Oh. He was that nice. And I'm like, the th- so the idea that he could have gone to someone that cut his balls off, I'm just like, no, you know, no, please, please don't tell me. I don't want to be that guy. And you might disagree, but it seems like the majority of horses that I see sometimes standing at stud. Now I'm not saying, I understand why a lot of race horses stand at stud. It's because listen, lineage is everything. Results are everything. I get that. Um, 
but I see a lot of horses standing in a stud that have not done anything. And then I look at them and I look at their confirmation and I look at their breeding. I'm like, why does this still have balls? Yeah. You ever been there? Uh, yep. Yep. Um, I know a spendthrift farm, um, I, I, not to drop any names, recently posted a video of a stallion of theirs who is very much over at the knee. And like, like me, Flo, and Nick's little thoroughbred group chat blew up over that photo, the screenshot of that stallion. So it's just like, I feel so bad for the social media manager who is sitting there having to probably weed through a million cut its balls off comments <laughs> from just like that stallion. And it's not like, it's not like it's a bad stallion, but he, he's definitely gone on and produced things, but he definitely is developing a um reputation for soundness issues in his in his foals and i'm like well no shit i mean his front legs look like noodles <laughs> well you know we run across that in a lot of breeds though and like so we've seen a big thing and i don't want to stir up a hornet's nest with this but we see you know we see medical boards veterinary medical boards push things in the law such as we're going to take antibiotics and other things off the shelf from the average owner being able to buy over the counter. You're going to have to go through us now to get it. Okay, whatever. But then, perfectly okay to breed two horses with recessive genetic defects. Yep, yep. Um, I, I, I am. I'm going to blast the American Court Horse Association for a second because the very fact that you guys aren't cutting or that the AQHA folks are not hard culling horses with HYPP is a problem. It, it's a problem. I, I don't, I cannot think of, actually, that's not true. I can think of one breed. I can't think of many other breeds that allow such a potentially crippling and lethal genetic disorder to continue being bred in well, there well the aqha has taken a stand for hypp like they they finally have oh yeah they've taken a stand on hypp so now when you send your paperwork you have to be five panel negative well i knew that but i i've even still seen like five panel negative but but now you can still be a carry but, yeah, yeah yeah you know and that is my, so that is my gripe. So here's my gripe. And I'm sorry if I offend anyone with this. And I know he made some great babies and everything, but why are we still breeding anything related to impressive? Amen. I don't, I don't even care if I insult anyone. Impressive never should have been bred in the first place. And it shouldn't, that, that is a line well, that. Impressive never showed any signs. Way. Yeah. Impressive never showed any signs of HYPP. Okay, maybe I'm thinking. Maybe I'm thinking of one of his like direct sons who had the big old like steroid bodies. Yeah, impressive himself never showed any sign of HYPP, and you know, and I, I hate that because I have run across impressive horses, perfectly fine, HYPP negative, beautiful horses, super athletic, um, great horses, good heads <laughs> on them, um, and I hate it, but it, you know, it's just. If I had to sacrifice it, it would just be one of those things I would go, you know what? Yeah. But what really irks me is you got people that see it in the AQHA, but they're in other registries, such as the Paint Horse Association and the Appaloosa uh, Horse Club. Yeah. 
And they stood idly by for years and didn't do a thing. And are just now catching up. Like, that irks me, I think, more than, than anything. Yeah, and like I said, there's only one other breed that I can think of, and I'm not going to say because I always come under fire when I do, that has that like has a, a significant amount of genetic disorders that has been fixed in some areas and uh, and still re- is a very much a problem in other areas. And I'll say that areas resulting in, in countries and amount of inbreeding. But when it comes to the quarter horses, like I very sadly um, knew of a horse who was an Ami horse. Like this horse was a trail horse before he got bought up by an English amateur who literally just wanted to trot around in the walk trot division. She was an older, older lady who just wanted to simply go out and enjoy riding horses and maybe go to a couple shows a year. And he was PSSM HYPP positive on some portion of the of the panel. And I when I mean that horse was so sensitive, if his potassium raised in any way, shape or form, he was having seizures. Yeah. And the fact that this was someone who was an amateur owner. It wasn't like someone like me or you who maybe knows about these things a little bit and can possibly manage it. It was an amateur owner. And see, that stinks. That stinks that, all the it, way around. It, it, it makes me boiling mad to think about. And that's why, and you know what? Every breed has something. Like I know in Warm Bloods, we're starting to see um, what used to be the Warm Blood Fetal Syndrome or, or Weak uh, weak Warm Blood fo- uh, Full Syndrome. Can we just- and it's popped up. One thoroughbred. Can we just? And it's just what that really is. Can we just call that Uncle Daddy syndrome? Yes. yes. And and no offense, I love warm bloods. I I think warm bloods are absolutely amazing. The warm blood breeding sucks. Yes, and like I can't talk because when it comes to thoroughbreds, they have issues, and like the number one that pops into my mind is the C four C five malformation in. In thoroughbreds, and it is commonly seen to where those those two vertebrae right in their neck just don't form exactly how they should. Yeah, and it's not like it's entirely debilitating. It is something that you know, once found, can be treated through proper nutrition, proper building up everything that's around that area, their entire um, trapezius sling and thoracic sling, and can help that horse live a very fulfilled life. But, but you- you know what bothers me though, though, hmm. the same people that are breeding these horses are so quick to attack breeds like the American saddlebred and call them spindly, too fine bone, too long backs, way back. When that horse has very few uh, muscle or skeletal issues, hardly any any genetic defect. Yep, and is exactly what a light saddle horse is supposed to be. I'm going to say it. I'm going to say it. Everyone who hates everything about horses, such as, you know, the Tennessee Walker, American Saddle Horse, National Show Horse, all those horses that, you know what, people say look a little bit weird and spindly, throw an extra few hundred pounds on it, paint it black and give it mane down to the ground, and you have a Frisian that has 13 genetic disorders, can die at any moment, cost you $40,000, and people think it's the most gorgeous thing on the planet. And I'm like, excuse me? Excuse me? The level of respect in the room right now i'm wheezing i can't breathe (laughs) no but i hear that all the time and they're like and i don't know what the comparisons are because you cannot compare 
again, these are preservation registries. These are registries preserving a type of horse, a historic mm -hmm. type of horse. You can't compare it to something like the AQHA, which is a performance horse registry that is constantly improving upon their horse. Again, I love that about the AQHA. I think that's cool. Yeah. Really cool concept. Really unique in the world of horses, um, in a way. But you can't, I can take a picture of a five gated American saddlebred right now and compare it to a five gated American saddlebred from 120 years ago. Mm -hmm. Will look the same. Absolutely. And like, do the same with Tennessee Walkers. Yes. Also, you, you, you just, you've mentioned it for the hundredth time and I want to put it out there and I want to make it very, very clear because people seem to think about it. The Jockey Club is a breed registry. The Jockey Club, either in Europe, the UK, Australia, New Zealand, Brazil, New Me uh, uh, Mexico, United States, Canada, every single Jockey Club in the world is a thoroughbred breed registry. It is not a racehorse registry. It is not a performance registry. It is not a sport registry. It is a breed registry. They just require to be registered with a jockey club. It has to be eight. One has thoroughbred parents, two, mm -hmm. five covered. Outside exactly. does not have to race. That card on the back of the registration where it lists race can be blank. Exactly. 100%. At their, and if you don't want to go through the jockey club, there's another option. You can just call it an American warm blood and register it there. Absolutely. There's options, folks. Absolutely. And I and I feel like I, people forget is there used to be a time when we were very heavily breeding sport bred rate uh sport bred thoroughbreds. Gem Twist, for instance, was a sport bred thoroughbred. He came from racing lines because he came from uh the Bon Wheat line. Uh, but he himself, Icy Twist and Gem Twist, were not racehorses. But, you know, that's one of the reasons why I love the idea of the American Warm Blood Association. Why I think that's such a cool idea is because it does give options. To yeah. folks, you know, I'm going to step just a hair out the box here. Do something a little different that's not harmful. No. That's improvement. And I don't have to deal with the jockey. Yes. And like we can talk, I've talked about up and down about the live cover rule in thoroughbreds because I'm going to say it. And it's something that is very near and dear to my heart. Over the last 20 years, we have bred less than half of the amount of thoroughbreds that we used to. In 1990, the number was like 44,000. And here in 2020, in 2020, it was less than 20,000. We are very rapidly seeing the decline of the American thoroughbred, whether anyone wants to admit it or not. It's happening, and it very much has an element to do with the live cover rule. Yeah. But I understand why the live cover rule exists, and it's for the reason of there's no, oopsie, we grabbed the wrong vial of semen. There's no, oopsie, uh, we can't prove who daddy is. There's no oopsies anywhere. It is that stallion mounted that mare, and we can confirm everything. Yeah. Someone I, watched it happen. I'm mistaken, but isn't it, aren't there, like, pictures taken when that takes place as proof as well possibly i'm not 100 percent sure i don't know but, just like something that would happen to somebody goes i need pictures to make sure this happened I yeah are there i'm slow to get her mare covered by palace malice but neither one of us can afford palace malice's stud fee right now yeah i i know 
we, we were talking about, she is so hyped up about Palace Malice. I can tell when she's been talking to you because she'll come into our thoroughbred chat and just be all Palace Malice. Uh, well, like she'll ask me, she goes, I'm, but you know, Malice is, Malice is not a bad stallion. Malice has got it. You know, and then, but the thing is, her mare, her mare is legit. Oh, yeah. And, and I was her and she was like, like on the fence about selling her. And I was like, just do a breeding lease. Find someone, like reach out to your repro vets in your area and do a breeding lease. Well, we were talking about maybe doing like a, I don't know what they call I'm going to call it a cooperative. Like all of us just pitch in that are interested in a baby, whatever we can afford for a percentage. And then we can, you know, we all show up one day when it's three to a race with our big hats or, and our bourbons and watch her baby. The funny side story. That That's one I can talk about. That's a, he isn't necessarily a massive off the track thoroughbred, but he did advocate really heavily. So if anyone doesn't know the story of funny side, funny side was bought as a, I believe a yearling or two year old by a group of buddies from Sackett's Harbor, New York. And they did, they pulled together like, 15,000 or 20,000 dollars and went and bought funny side and funny side ended up being one person in that entire group was a horsey and that one person didn't wasn't even invested in racehorses and thoroughbreds he was a standard bread trainer and owner mm -hmm. and he got his buddies together and like we're gonna buy a racehorse we're gonna invest in this we're gonna do something with this and they bought funny side and now funny side lives at i think the kentucky horse park with a little miniature pony if i'm right i think every every picture i've seen is with him in a little that, miniature that seems that seems about right because you know they keep minis out at the kentucky horse park i've walked past them one of them is mean as hell i'm just gonna lie <laughs> yeah but like and so like the fact that racing is absolutely accessible when you have the people and like I had someone ask me, um, what's a really good way to get into racehorses if you don't know anything about them? And I said syndication. Um, I can think of like West Point Thoroughbreds is the first one that comes into mind only because I've even thought about syndicating through them to where the syndication price can be anywhere from $1,000 to $15,000. And you pay that and essentially you own a share of that racehorse. So you, you get to go to the races, you get to play in the owner's box, you get to have that little experience of, I own a racehorse, but it's none of the actual financial commitment of the day-to-day -day paying the trainer, paying for the feed, paying the jockey. And, I, and what you're kind of describing is kind of syndication. Um, it's just a breeding syndication as far as I can understand. Like you want a bunch of friends to get together and we're all going to chip in on that one little colt and we can register that colt under the name of the syndication of the, the, the Palace Malice fan club and and, and breed that foal. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I don't know. I, th I think the actual name was going to be a mediocre horse. <laughs> so, so when it crossed the finish line, they could say mediocre horse one. The jockey club has a name, has a rule. Um, I believe that the name can't end in anything horse related. Hmm. So it can't name it can't end in something like Colt or Philly or horse or something like that. We'll just call it a mediocre one. Yes. That that, that would probably work. That reminded me of Hoof Hearted. Hoof yeah. Well, Hearted. you know one of my favorite <laughs> frat daddy. Because even though it was about uh the oil industry, it always made me think of Battlestar Galactica. Yes. How they this how they used frat. Um yeah, it's fun. Uh, I got Dapple though wanting to come on. Dapple, do you want to come on and talk about thoroughbreds? Because if you do, I will let you. Well, and I, uh, 
Well, while they're getting ready to answer, I'm also going to throw out um, potatoes. Pot-8-os. <laughs> best, best name ever. I did a video on that horse. In fact, I still have it written because I held up a board. Because mm-hmm. literally, the, the kid wrote it. The legend goes that they told the kids, the, the, the stable boy, write this on a, you know, on the placard. And I remember writing it. Hold on. I got it right here. <laughs> oh, God. Knocking over beer cans. I don't consume alcohol, kids. Yep. I wrote it on a board and used it for for a video. Um, that's best name ever, Pot Eight. Yeah. But you know yeah. what? The name can be re-registered, by the way, because he's not living. Yes, yeah, so the Jockey Club has rules like um, they're like like name like um, if they're super successful. So, like, Secretariat is officially a retired name. First indicator of what year they were born. So, if it's been 25 years, you can reuse a name. Or if the horse was just, like, absolutely. Secretariat. We're never going to see another sham. We're never going to see another Seattle slough. We're never going to see another. Biscuit. Do what? Sea Biscuit. Yeah, we're never going to see another Sea Biscuit or American Pharaoh or anything like that. That's not going to. Or California Chrome. We're not. I think it's nuts that we had American Pharaoh and California Chrome just literally within a few years apart. Absolutely. What, what, I mean, I mean, I'm just I'm sitting there going, you know, and at the time I was in my 30s, and I'm like, holy cow, you know, it's been this many years, and boom, in my lifetime, I get to see two. I get to see two Triple Crown winners, and then I imagine my parents who got to see three almost back to back. Yep. Yep. With- oh, you want to talk about something really quick? Flightline and American Pharaoh. When I say that they are so confirmationally similar, I have seen pictures of, uh, who was it? American Pharaoh loading into the gate and be like, oh, it's a Flightline video. Here's the thing. And this is going to be controversial. I think head to head. Flightline takes American Pharaoh. Oh, definitely. Like, okay, I, I, I'm not going to say it in the in the way that, like, statistically, no. Flightline does not compare to Secretariat. The only reason why any comparison is ever made between Flightline and Secretariat is the manner in which Flightline won his races. Flightline just had an extra gear. He just kicked it in, into, into gear. And just pulled away from every other horse. It's that secretariat style of winning. Syndrome is what I call it. Secretariat yeah. syndrome. That other gear that most horses don't have. Exactly. Do I love Flightline? Absolutely. Do I think he's the greatest racehorse in the world right now? Fuck. Like, no. 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 Like, immediately. Like, I, even in the last 10 years, I can think of a horse who is better than him. And it's over in the UK. And it's Frankel. You want to talk about a horse Oh, that- Yes. And those Frankel babies have hit the ground. And let me tell you, I would give the left side of my, the whole left side of my body for a Frankel baby. Yeah, I'd, I'd give a, a left something definitely <laughs> uh, for a Frankel baby. You know, I'm glad you brought Frankel up because, quite honestly, it was like that's a name that I've not heard anybody throw around in a while. 
I, that's the, you know me, like I, my love of American racing is there, but my love of European racing, especially like the UK and Ireland, like just that, that it hits different for me. Those horses are horses I genuinely sit there and drool over. Well, oh, and, and you want to name two racing industries that I would analyze myself to get access to? And it is the German and French racing industries. So I, we talked about this the last time. And I think I mentioned this was like my love for French Arab racing. <laughs> exactly here's the thing there's never any like english subtitles to the races so they're always in there screaming in french as these horses are jumping olympic level fences in a five mile steel chase yeah well and then and then you've got races in like the uk that have horses in their teens running yep like, and horses that come back after it's where oh we're gonna retire him at five he starts to slow down well he's 50 he still seems kind of spry let's go throw in the national hunt yeah well you know i did a video recently about the it's the three horseshoe um stakes in the uk and there was an arab that won that uh it's been a few years ago that horse was 19 years old but like, yeah. we don't get to see that here like every you know we get to see horses five six years old sometimes you know uh running in at some of these you know daily betting tracks the man that's a legend wise that boy like you want to talk about a big chestnut after my own heart wise day he wasn't as big of an asshole but he was a bit of a prick and the fact he has earned his retirement so i've always said and there, there's always been you know i like running bread thoroughbred uh running bread quarter horse yeah and uh dash for cash is my one of my favorite lines uh very close second would be corona mm -hmm. or and i hate to say it but a third would be like firewater so like any horses out of firewater split but dash for cash i'm a little old school i love dash for cash but i always said i wanted a dash for cash baby which something like a wise dan mm -hmm. oh my gosh oh my gosh what an just sprinkle in the turf that's all you need a sprinkling of the turf breeder <laughs> and just make that a barrel horse oh you want to talk about an sob that'll give the damn down and burn <laughs> it might be the epitome of alley but still it'll be alley if you love though like you know like you know they're coming you're really mentally prepared for it but you also know it's because that horse it's not even like a psychosis it's because that horse's job oh yeah well you know i try to explain that to a lot of people they look at it and they're like and I, listen i know plenty of very well behaved horses that are super calm in the alley but i've seen a lot of horses that stand in the alley that will want to hop a little bit that are perfectly fine teaching kids how to ride any other day of the week it's just they see the pattern they know the pattern they know their job it's like a thoroughbred in the starting gate it's not because that's a bad horse because he's antsy in the starting gate he just wants to run he knows his job horses don't think like we do they don't process like no and that that's like a that's we can circle back with the off-track thoroughbred is people when when you realize that a horse loves their job especially off-track thoroughbreds when they're about to go do that job whether running a race, running a barrel pattern, they get, get genuinely excited. And it's not that they're hot. It's not, it's not that they're forward. It's that they're doing something they love. Yeah. I mean, you see it with, you see it with race horses. You see it with steeplechase horses. You know, you see it with hunts. You see it with, you see it with everything. When a horse truly loves his job and it knows its job, it knows this is what I know how to do. This is what you taught me how to do. This is what you like me to do. <coughs> They get excited. 
the one thing I said I will never do is my, 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 my lovely little gentleman, the horse I have ridden completely tactless, is take him fox hunt. My horse, a turf bred horse who ran really well on the turf and he loves jumping. The idea of taking that horse fox hunting just made me think of having my shoulders ripped out of my sockets and my hands being completely bloody because when I started training that horse right out on trails, I would come back with he saw big open pastures, wanted to run. And that's not saying my horse is bad in perform. As a matter of fact, strong and wanted to run. He wanted to do his bread do what he loved to do and I, I never had it against him in his life. But I also recognize fox hunting or cross country like that. Um, not in my medical bill. Yeah, that's the way I'll phrase it. I don't have the medical bills to allow him to really do what he loves as a Funny as that might sound, but, but is he getting another delivery? No, no, no. I'm getting another beverage. Ah, okay. The, uh... By the way, uh, I don't often tell people, but riding horses was in, in, her name was Loretta Suna Jet. I don't know the mayor's pet like that. This was like because the... Palomino. Redhead. I love her. Especially a redheaded mare. When I tell you that this mare was, loved the barrel pattern so much the way my, my mom kept her like they had a stall in it but by and large turnout was also the year and and they would have to knock the barrels over because if the barrels were standing up when that mare was turned out with no one on her back that mare would sit there all day and and work the barrel pad well, that was a mare that like was brainwashed to love barrels. yeah my my last my last barrel horse was tighter it's just it comes back to horse it doesn't matter what they're doing if they know their job and they love I got a great one. The man, the myth, the legend, Hickstead, the jumping. Yes. The jump. That, I literally switching riders. They did the course once and then switched riders. Another rider was supposed to the same exact course. And I, it, it went from Eric Lamaze riding him. I think, I think Meredith Michaels Beerbaum, who, by the way, is like 4'11". She's a tiny, and she got on Hickstead and he said that, that she, like that horse, he, he jumped it with Eric Lamaze and was just like, okay, sweet. And I was like, I, I'm pretty sure strapped a stand animal that horse is back and he a friend who had a horse that was a horse that they that friend could think all a lot of it does come from the me and your kind of average person doesn't know anything about horses except what other people tell them well and okay. what what hurts too is when you see something and again as much as rich strike was great for shining a positive light on in the industry you see somebody like rich strike gnawing on the outrider like taking chunks out of the outrider and the outrider's horse you know it doesn't paint a lot of horses good light it doesn't mean Richie's a bad horse. I, I don't know many horses that would have acted any different. Yeah. Um, and I kind of in the same vein, maybe maybe in the same vein, maybe not. So I have seen some stuff like on Facebook and on here. The use of OTT uh, when describing, in your opinion, is that necessary when it comes to advertising a horse or describing that someone has versus just saying the thoroughbred? Yes. I will say yes, because there are plenty of unraced thoroughbreds and horses that never set foot on the racetrack. So I feel like OTTB is the modifier of, look, this horse has this, whether they trained at the track for, couldn't figure out what a gallop even was, or their stakes winning race horse. Like OTTB is something I do think should be advertised. And I also should be advertised because I hate to say this, and I'm sorry if I offend anyone do. There are people out there that 100% do not will not refuse to look at a horse that has ever stepped on the track. And I don't want a horse that's advertised as a thoroughbred, but has reasons to end up in a barn of someone who has that feeling. But to me, to me though, that when I see off the track, it's a horse that already knows all the basics. 
I just need now to teach that horse what I need to teach horse. I need to finish that horse in the direction I want to finish. I look at off the track thoroughbred as a started but not finished. And many people do. And then there are also many people who think, well, I have to restart this horse because they only know Rick now. Well, and I used to misspeak a lot because I would say, and you caught me the last time we tried to do this, we'd start over. When uh, really, it's not what I meant, but it was the words that came out of my mouth. Yeah. Uh, and it was, and, and really what it is, is just finishing. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, so leading into that, sorry, I guess I've had quite a few, I not worth trying to do in the comments. If you've got this many questions, you need to buy a third. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know where I'd put it. <laughs> put it next to Nirvana. They could be buddies. They used to be thoroughbreds in the stalls and I don't know how they fit in there. <laughs> For those that don't know who's asking questions, this is Hannah Schroeder. Hannah has been on a few episodes of uh, the Roundtable of Mediocre Horsemen that we do here. And uh, she's an admin for me. And she's been an awesome friend and uh, an awesome follower. Gave me a little heart. Love you too. Uh, Hannah has been here since the early days and supported me. So, yeah, lots of love toward Hannah. And Jess too. Not, not, uh, Jesse is, uh, you're. Listen, me, you, Flo, and Hannah, and Jessamine Rice, and, and nice others, you might as well be family at this point. I don't have any siblings. Yeah. So it is what it is. You're stuck with me. What is? <laughs> so uh, to get back on the thoroughbred, this is where you have to go. Um, so in that discussion, is there a time period where it is no longer necessary to classify that they leave from the track? Like once that horse has been off five, ten years and been through training? Or or is that something that really that should stick with? Can I answer this and then I'll let you go? Because I've got thoughts on it. You, you go ahead because you know I have thoughts. Here's my thing. To me, off the track thoroughbred and then you list all the achievements afterwards is a badge of honor. Like if you go off the track thoroughbred, jumping, you know, meter, whatever, uh, doing this has taken uh, whatever dressage test, has done whatever. To me, that is just showing how good that horse is. Like, that's a positive. In, in my mind, that is 100% a positive. If you tell me you've got a horse that is Stormcat and something else and it's jumping meter 40 and, and, you know, it's been done, done pony club stuff and doing this and it's doing that, all of that is positive, in my opinion. Now, you know, to me, it's not as impressive when you just say thoroughbred. When you say off the track thoroughbred you peak my and genuinely have the belief that if it's the track it is it, it, it cannot be helped in any way and like i said there are people that but, but do you want those people owning do you want those people no, no. that's why i love to have it at the same time i look at my my horse has been off the track for a decade only half passes he jump he he consistently wins at two foot six in the hunters and the jumpers that horse sits there and do changes he literally like He's worked cows. He has done. I sit in there having to do insurance paperwork every year and justifying his price for his uh, mortality rate. It's insane. And I still have to include, include the fact that he raced on his insurance paperwork because it, it did do damage to his body. He has early onset arthritis. But this horse has been off the track for a decade, done all of these things, has all of these accolades. And if I were to advertise him tomorrow as the thoroughbred, and if he ever came to the track, I said, yeah. As a matter of fact, he was halfway successful. They would pass on it. See, yeah, and the crazy thing to me, when I look at off the track, purposely bred for a particular reason, athleticism, winning, just keywords, hashtags here at this point. That's what I'm seeing. When I see off the track, now, for a lot of people, like Jesse said, 
that doesn't equate that. They think hot, heavy, crazy, not going to work out for what they want. Uh, a horse that's basically untrainable. A horse they have to start over from the ground up. And, and like, let's get off the track there. A brand horse that's been by an ambulance, has been shipped across the country, has been handled since the time that they hit the ground, has been work scheduled from the time that they were weaned. A horse that has, like, has seen chickens, has seen dogs. Has seen golf carts, has seen tractors. A horse that, it, like, you want to talk about a horse that is darn bump. Listen, off the track thoroughbred. When, when I hear off the track thoroughbred, that, that tells me that I, there's something that I don't have to teach loading mm -hmm. because <laughs> it will literally load into an airplane. Yep. Uh, so, I, I, if you, you still have time, I have just because keep in mind, I come from the game. Yeah. No, you're no, question, no, I know. I, I, and, I can have a few more minutes of it. it. It's okay to be wrong. It's. <laughs> <laughs> um so with that with specifically for race um is there and i i understand very probably is there any thought racing foals to what they will do after the track because i'm sure every person has to know that it's not going successfully so yeah yes and no but it's not on the if that makes any sense because every breeder has every hope that every every single foal that hits the ground is they don't even entertain the idea that in three years this horse is going to be someone's hunter pony they all treat and that's one thing is that every single hits the ground is treated that way even if they know the reason but here's and and kind of the thing it's on in jobs that are after track like for me and and ryan knows i hear the words blushing and i about peanuts i get like oh <laughs> yes, 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 yes. I like that as a sport horse stallion, thing stallion, and there are a lot of line thoroughbreds like that. And the, the thoroughbred can is really, really good about keeping track of that. as far as these horses after the and like Stormcat. Stormcat has a reputation, and those are horses that are athletic around in the same line on the complete opposite. That there, who look at Stormcat as unworkable because they won't. But here's my opinion. On storm cats, and we see a lot of storm cat horses in the barrel world. And mm -hmm. there's a good reason why we see a lot of storm cat horses in the barrel world. It's for one, they ha legitimately have a brain, they're not stupid, exactly. They're not gonna just let you just mindlessly push them around. And, and that makes a lot of sense on my end, even in the past, of being, as we have some bloodlines, um, imponente, you, you cannot. Not Mm -hmm. Somebody's yeah. but, bloodline, so I told totally... and, and I, I want to talk about Stormcat for a second. I know he's got to go in a minute. Stormcat is a perfect example of horses that get a reputation, in my opinion, for absolutely no reason. Stormcat lined horses are generally intelligent. That's their mm -hmm. downfall. Yep, because the majority of horse people don't, don't know how to deal with a horse that's intelligent. Yeah, like you, you literally have to, you got a horse. That's trying to outthink you as much as you're trying to think something wrong with that. You want horses that are intelligent, horses that have problem solving. Because guess what? When you figure out the way to train that horse, it's going to be really easy in the long run. Now, if you throw the same basic dumb stuff that you throw at every other horse that's got an IQ of force scum, it's not going to work. No. But so I, I do want to kind of loop back and, and kind of more fully answer Hannah's question. That is, the racing industry is currently trending to breeding horses for, for better balance and longevity because they understand we are they are a dying the 
thoroughbred, the American thoroughbred team bred at, at Ace right now. So they have to breed and they have to breed horses that are able to last longer. They understand the importance of the aftercare industry. And, but again, they are not breeding for the potential off the track. They are breeding them dang good. And it is up to us as a, to be like, oh, okay, this stallion's actually sit down and me and her can go back and for hours about thoroughbred road lines on, oh man, have, <laughs> did you know this one's numbers? Did you know this thing? Like, it, we, we've done, I the, we a, it was a three something hour episode. Yeah. Yeah. It, it was, it was glorious. I loved it. I know. Uh, have time for should, one more question. I have time for one more. Okay. So this is kind of along the lane with going back to the stereotypes and the um, stuff. So like when I was a kid, I was, yeah, anti-raiding, anti-slaughter because of basing and stuff. And I, I mean, I pulled a one hundred. I did not, not know stuff back then, but is there any sort of, tr- the, the like they are, if they are not successful, more likely to end up at an auction or is that a made up? No, and I will say I, I will say this. I say no with the knowledge of people specifically who do still perpetrate uh, perpetrate it. Um, Burton Sip, I will name him right now because I have a big problem with Mountaineer and the West Virginia Racing Com- uh, Commission having anti slaughter policies and anti auction policies that have actually gone to a kill pen auction, a legitimate kill pen auction, they slaughter contract and said it's a same. So there are people who do it. I won't say it doesn't happen, but I am saying by and large. We are the only equine industry that actually tracks how many of us end up in second homes. We are the only equine industry that is raising funds to ensure that when horses are done race or done with their first career, they have a second career to go to. We are the only industry that is actively every single day waking asking how can we make the world better for these horses when they are out of our like sixth or seventh grade. And I had heard a story about a race horse that was successful and did well and as soon as that the owner was done with it they just sent it off to slaughter and you know when I'm 11 or 12 that made a big impact and unfortunately I didn't have the equine committee at that time to tell me that's either an extreme outlier or really fabricated um, um, that's why I'm I, like, I want to know so that I have the correct d- dissuade people from that notion and I won't say that it wasn't true at some point in time I can't say that I will I haven't been alive all, all. I can definitely see time in around, especially the 80s and 90s, where, where it was common because we were trending away from using thoroughbreds as sec- for second careers, and we had more thoroughbreds than we knew what to do with. But then as I grew right around the time that I was 12, into, I noticed something, and I noticed was that, you know, it wasn't a, lot, a whole lot of thoroughbreds I saw, but if I wanted a finished American Quarter Horse has show mine, I can go to the nearest auction. And that was just because, and it, it was at that turning point in which thoroughbreds began decreasing, but the American quarter horse was booming, truly, truly booming. And that's when like AI became really massive. And so, yeah, you would have is that, that had show miles, but guess what? They, they are not in the money and they can't afford to get 1500 out of them. They're not on our feed bill anymore. Yeah, it, it used to be, you would go to, you would go flip through that appendix of the stud book in the American quarter horse. Mm-hmm. And you would find something. Well, let's throw some new athletic, blood and and you got a lot of folks that are away from that they would rather go out there and get old blood and hope for the best than than do any any of that and it, yeah part of that kind of irks me because i love the thorough into the american quarter horse I, I probably said that eight times but, but it, it's just something to me that's magical about when quarter horses 
and thoroughbreds come together. Absolutely. And I I will hold chest and I am quite frankly pass the public care if it offends me. As someone in the thoroughbred industry, as someone in the racing industry, I have a deep dislike of the American quarter horse industry because of how many times I've seen them point the finger at the racing at the thoroughbred racing for slaughter when I knew I could go to the NART show strip of quarter horse. Oh no, I'm and- with you. I mean, I can go to an auction right now, and it doesn't matter if it's a catalog sale or not. It's mm-hmm. nothing but quarter horses. It is. And like I said, I, I, I'm, I don't even care if I offend anyone with it. I have beef with the quarter horse industry because one of the biggest people who sit there and point the finger as a thoroughbred industry and all of ours, because we are, we are, are not without sin, is the American quarter horse. And don't and don't get it twisted, folks. It's not that we are anti-American quarter horse. We love the quarter horse. No, no. we think the quarter horse is absolutely amazing. It's the industry that surrounds it at times. You find fault with. Yeah, and I feel like when you love a when you love a cult, when you love a, a something like the quarter industry or the racing industry, if you can't sit there and point out its and point out the problems that people need to fix, you don't really love. It. you're just blissfully a, a part of it well i so and on the same thing i see this a lot as a sports guy i'm a big college football fan and i see a lot of people say well you're not a true fan if you find fault in your team no no no, no. in my opinion you're more more of a you can find fault with your team and still support your team but find fault mm-hmm. and things that needs to be fixed and that's kind of how i am with the american quarter horse well it's the same way with with thoroughbred and and even with Morgans, I'll be the first to. Everybody knows it's no secret I'm a Morgan guy, and there's fault there. Some of these Morgans I'm seeing registered as Morgans these days irritate the piss out of me. You know, we're if we see that within our own breed, we've had to be very self-regulated. Our breed, which is already is dying because you're not very. We were not good at regulating ourselves or promoting. Uh, we're still not. Um, I, I brought up some the other day, and I'm like, why do we bother? putting up banners at shows all we're doing is advertising to but i i get what you're saying you need to reckon like you can still recognize if anything i see you're a true fan if you stand by them while still recognizing going out the faults 100 percent. i mean that that's the thing is when you love something and you care about it you want to see it perform the best it can i i, I say this is probably in the chat right now um is the fact you- that hey. i'm a baby i'm a baby how old are you Years. 27 eh, not that much younger. well I'm, i say it i i, 40, I, I, yeah. I, I knew i was much younger than you right but, <laughs> but i say this as someone who gets up every day and tries to make an impact and has tried to make an impact on how people leave thoroughbreds literally from the time that i was 12 years old. like this isn't something i decided to wake up and start doing a tiktok when something i've been living is that i have to be vocal and i have have to be loud and I have to I have to man within my own industry, starting with myself and people that surround me otherwise no one's gonna no one else that's already in the industry is really going to if that makes sense your breeders at Claiborne and Ashford and all these massive stud farms aren't gonna sit there and say yeah you know what we we really don't see any problem 100% change always has to come from yeah mm-hmm. exactly.